What is your definition of success? As a high achiever, you know you are able to perform at the top levels of business. The journey to the top can come with many hurdles and roadblocks, especially for women. When you know your value and choose to stop proving yourself, you embrace being you and then success typically follows. I'm Dr. Jessica Metcalf and this is Speak Kindly, You're Listening. Don't forget to check out the book with the same name that inspired it all out on Amazon and is now a bestseller. To my fabulous listeners, I'm really thrilled to share with you that we are slowly coming to a close of the second season. We'll have one more episode after today and then we'll be taking a break for the summer, which <clears throat> you should be taking some form of a break as well. Yes, you deserve it. I recently got back from a conference I was speaking at and for the high achiever, it tends to be a theme of you can only take a break when you're absolutely at your wit's end. So wait, you're telling me you're only allowed to take a break when you are breaking? No, that's not healthy physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually for yourself, your team, or your family and friends. Take that break and learn to be okay with it. Leave the guilt on the sideline. Next season will be out at the end of September, so mark your calendars. You're going to want to stay right to the end of the episode because I share what's in store for the last episode as well as season three, and I do have a bit of an ask of you. Without further ado, with me today is Julia Stewart with over 40 years of executive leadership and success. Julia started out in corporate where her impressive resume gives her titles like chair, CEO, and director for global companies such as Applebee's and IHOP. With her new creation in the entrepreneur world, Allurex keeps with her vision, aligned strategies, and focus on customer and operational excellence, just as hallmarks as she has done throughout her entire career. On today's episode, Julia shares her journey to success, discovering confidence in choosing her, and realizing her potential that defines no bounds. This is a great story. Here we go. Julia, thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to dive into your story because it is so vast and you have been through so much with so many experiences that I really, truly believe a lot of our listeners are going to appreciate. Thank you so much for including me and having me on. The whole podcast around Speak Kindly or Listening is paying attention to you as that leader and moving through those different stages in our life. So I want to start right back from when you were a teenager, when you waitressed at IHOP. So take me through waitressing at IHOP to then eventually becoming president of Applebee's. You got the story right. I did start out as a food server at IHOP when I was in high school. I wanted money to, as most people did, to drive a car, buy a car, and uh, wanted all that cash. And so, you know, I look back on that now and it was the luck. I mean, I really do think right time, right place. Back then we wore the uniform with the hat and the cuffs and the little apron and the whole outfit and the white nurse's shoes that was standard format. And I went to work for a franchisee in San Diego where I was growing up. And I would say within a week, uh, it became a passion, this notion of service and service leadership and helping people and believing and knowing that you could walk in in a bad mood and I could change that mood as a food server in 40 minutes or less. It became like this, a wonderful feeling. And then people always say, what got you hooked? But you know, if you think about it back then or now as a food server, you get daily feedback from guests, from management, 
from the cook, from everyone. You get daily feedback. I liked that daily sense of hearing the good, the bad, and the ugly and being part of a small, but a family. And I really love that. So after graduating, I went on to college and stayed working in the restaurant business. But I always had this, you know, wonderful recollection of those early times. And when I got out of college, I was a marketing and business major and looking for what came next. And by the luck of the draw, I went to work for Carl's Jr. And I was in the marketing department and I had, you know, a little bit of empathy for those on the front line. And that really graduated me. So for years, I stayed in the restaurant. I really did have an affinity for it. I mean, I really, I think you to really like that, you have to believe in it, right? You have to have it in your core. And I would go visit restaurants. And I think it made a difference that I started from the ground up, which I really did. And so after I had been doing this for 18 years, marketing for different companies, pretty much everyday indulgent brands, I'll come back to that. And then I had done that for so long, and I really felt like it was time to broaden my horizons. And I had heard about this opportunity at Taco Bell, where they would take people from other businesses, and they would put them in a training program, which they called the Advanced Management Recruit Program. And if you survived, you would go into operations. And I thought the idea of seeing the other side. And frankly, at that point, I knew I wanted to run something and I didn't believe anyone would hire me unless I had P&L background, right? In other words, marketing people have a tendency to be told they're the people who spend the money and operators are told they're the people who make the money. So I went looking for this unique opportunity and Taco Bell hired me and I was doing the training and loving every minute of it. I always thought it was a little bit funny that people thought I could be a successful marketeer and run a department of 40, but I somehow couldn't run operations. I always thought that was kind of, um, well, I thought that was interesting. So after I did this for a while, I kept getting promoted. And honestly, I just loved it. I enjoyed it. I loved the accountability. I loved the daily interaction, but I did get to use my creativity and my marketing expertise to obviously make the business get better. And I remember going to the CEO like it was yesterday and saying, I've got this great idea. I want to try 24 hours. And he said, well, Julia, you can't screw up the company. So go ahead and try it. And then when that was successful, I said, you know, I got this idea. I I want to try breakfast. And of course, those are staples of Taco Bell today. So I'm very proud of that and the team that I worked with. And what I learned during that experience is that I probably would have stayed indefinitely. I love the company. Uh, By this time, they were no longer owned by PepsiCo. They were their own entity, part of KFC and Pizza. I really, really liked it there. And I liked the culture and the people. But the guy that was the CEO I mentioned earlier was leaving. And in corporate America, especially large corporate America, if you're not on the short list, they haven't told you you're on the short list, you're probably not on the short list. And he had always said, oh, you're going to be my likely replacement, except I didn't hear that from others. And so I thought, okay, let's see what this gives. And probably two years later, I realized I didn't think they'd ever make a woman CEO. And that has truly come to pass. So I made the decision that I would go looking and an executive recruiter called and said, hey, we have this great opportunity to run the largest sit-down restaurant chain, you know, at the time, the casual dining chain, which was Applebee's. So I said, great, I'll at least go on the interview. 
And I really liked what I saw. And the chairman and, and CEO at the time said, we'll bring you in as president. You turn the company around and we'll make you CEO. And I thought, well, that sounds like a really good deal to me. So I moved my young family to Kansas City and I went to work for Applebee's. And I really do tell the story that the good news was I was fortunate enough to hire and recruit some of the finest people that I'm still very much in touch with today that were wonderful. And what I learned early on in my career is hire people smarter than you in different categories, because that really does make a difference. So fortunately for me, I hired some of the best and the brightest, whether it was the executive chef or marketing or operations, or I was very fortunate. So we did exactly what we were told. And so for three years, we were tirelessly doubled the stock, turned the company around, had positive same-store sales growth, did everything possible. I could not have been more proud of the team. And as I tell the story, I went into the CEO one day and I had my little graph that showed where we had started and where we'd ended up. And I was quite proud of myself. And I said, so I'm thinking we're ready for the blast off and ready for me to take over as CEO. And he said, no. And I thought he meant, well, not today. And I said, well, course, not necessarily today. Let me take out my pad of paper and you tell me what things I could demonstrate for you and the board. And he said, well, no, not never. So I had to think about that for a minute. And I come from the world that says, you know, if you're going to say something bad, just probably don't say anything at all. <laughs> so I yep. stepped back and right, took a moment and said, you know, I want to sleep on that. And I uh, came in the next day and I said, you know, I really think we have a problem because I'm doing all the work and I'm here. I've got the responsibility and the accountability, but you're not giving me the title. And that is incredibly problematic. So maybe it's time to, you know, move on down that yellow brick road. And he said, well, you can't leave. If you leave, the stock will tank. And I thought about that for a minute and said, you know, that doesn't really make any sense. There's something wrong about this. So we agreed to disagree and um, worked out an arrangement and I left. And I was fortunate enough because at that point we had really, the team had made such a name for itself that wasn't before long before International House of Pancakes called and said, we're looking for a CEO, not a president, a CEO. And would you be interested? And I said, yes, if you put in writing that I get to be CEO and there's no misunderstanding, sure. And the rest, as they uh, say, is history. I got to go back to where it had all started and fell in love with the brand and the people and the franchisees and had a remarkable time and was tasked virtually with doing the same thing. Turn it around, grow the business. We are in this negative situation. So did all the right things, a slightly different playbook. I don't want to say it was identical because that's not fair. Brought in a whole new team. Some of them came with me from Applebee's, great team. And took a couple of years. It, it really does take time, obviously. And turned it around and then literally said to the board, if we don't do something, we're right for a, a takeover because we didn't have any debt and we were just printing money. It was like nothing you've ever seen. A 50% increase. It was unbelievable. IHOP was on fire. And so I took the entire franchise community and everyone else to Hawaii to sort of celebrate this wonderful um, opportunity, but I did say to the board, we're going to have to look for something. So we went looking for an acquisition. And at the time, it was going to be a small acquisition and whatever. And lo and behold, 
true story. Back then you read the newspaper. So I was actually physically reading the Wall Street Journal. And on the front cover was an article that said that Applebee's was um, not doing well and looking at strategic alternatives up to and including the sale of the company. I called the bankers and I said, look, I have no idea if this is the right thing. And the long and the short of it is we began that process. I told the board, I don't, you don't fall in love, but let's take a look and see if it makes sense. And in the end, the synergies between bringing the two companies together and really creating that incredible synergy for marketing and for training and for all the other aspects and food consolidation and buying power. And it was just amazing. So it made sense. And so on that glorious day where we had put the, the business together and figured out that we could do a back then what was unheard of, a securitization to securitize the assets and all of the royalty streams and put it together. On the day the deal closed, I had to call that gentleman who had um, told me that he would never make me CEO and I had to let him go because you don't need two CEOs. So I called and said, there's, you know, this is a very short phone conversation because we don't need two CEOs. And he said, well, I was waiting for the call. And, you know, you don't borrow $2.7 billion for revenge, but there was about 30 seconds where it felt really good to say goodbye to the gentleman who, and we all know what that was about. We just don't talk about, right? right. The aggressive, assertive female. The reason I tell that story isn't for the revenge. It's to say, you do the right thing. And somehow I believe the right thing happens to you. And that was really all around. And to this day is very successful. And so right after we did all that, the financial crisis hit the market. And so it was, you know, not an easy time. And I tell that story because the stock went to $5.55 and people said, oh my God, how are you ever going to, going to, you know, maneuver your way through this great team, great support. We did stock went to $120, $30 a share. We made a lot of people, a lot of money and created a lot of jobs. So when I left, it's a quarter of a million employees that worked for the two brands worldwide. We had done very well outside the US, 400 and some franchisees, all doing extremely well. The business was doing well. I couldn't be more proud. 20 years, if you think about it, between the two brands, a long time. And, you know, but 20 years as a public CEO, quarter to quarter, you tire a little bit. And so it was probably time for a change. And I knew that. And if you think about it, by then it had been 40 years in the restaurant business. So I really took some time off to decide what comes next. And, you know, if you think about it, I started this conversation by telling you all those brands I worked for were what the industry calls everyday indulgent brands. And that's a really nice way of saying too much sugar, too much salt, too much portion size, too much fat. And so I wasn't necessarily looking to do that for another X amount of years. And so I began to do some research, and this is a true story, and trying to find out what were consumers wanting and needing in their lives. And that's how the whole notion of creating wellness started. And I began to do first some consumer research and then really informational interviews talking to people and found out there was this problem that Americans had that they could not get a health and wellness strategy. They didn't have any place to go to. They could search it online on Google or, or they could try to get on one app here or one app there or try to get this product, but they didn't believe, they didn't trust. And, and frankly, even their doctor had limited wellness strategy for them. And thus the notion of Alurix was born. 
And that was right before the pandemic three years ago. And so we have been on this crusade ever since. It's really a mission-driven idea that we created. And I couldn't be more proud of the of the work. And we're getting ready. We've just started the app development, which was really created all along for behavior modification. So the notion that you could literally get on our app and you could choose, at least in the beginning, there might be three or four different need states, right? You want to sleep better. You want to eat better. You want to get rid of your anxiety, whatever it may be. And we're going to walk you through what that process looks like from a ritual with our doctors and medical experts. And if you answer the questions, you may go in door number one, you may go in door number three, you may want some recommended products. You may never do any of that. It may just be your sleep routine. I have learned more about behavior modification than I ever wanted. (laughs) I absolutely love this story because there are so many different elements where there were bumps along the way. And when we see everything just in a quick... Like you just took a few minutes right now to describe from start to finish, but it sounds perfect, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's exactly it is. That's one of the reasons why I love hearing stories, but I also like to dive into those other different components because there are those moments in time where that negative emotion, the consuming, going back to what you initially said with daily feedback, that is huge because then you get used to hearing from others on how to improve. So tell me when... You were sitting in that moment in time because the immediate feedback that you got when that individual had said, well, no, you're going to stay as president. Sure, we'll we'll get you to do more work or whatever it is, but we're not going to give you the title. That was instantaneous feedback at that point in time. How long did it take you to decide that, no, this isn't happening. It's time for me to leave. And what did that feel like hearing that? You know, I think... It took about 24 hours, but I want to tell you, had that happened 20 years before, I don't think I would have had the same reaction. I do think as you age and you go through the good, the bad, and the ugly, you also gain confidence, or at least I did. And I got to a point where I said, my worth is more than just staying and being the number two and doing all the work and not getting the title. I earned it. I deserved it. The team and I had worked incredibly hard. And we're not talking for a month. We're talking for years. And we had turned the business around. We deserved better. We all deserve better. So it really did take me 24 hours to process and separate, and this is important, separate the sort of I was angry and hurt from the, wait a minute, I'm going to turn this into an opportunity. I'm too good at what I do. I have too much of my future left. I'm too valuable to someone else and to another organization and to myself. And I don't want to shortchange myself. I knew I had to go do something else. And we were able to reach an agreement and I stayed for a period of time so that we could message to the street appropriately. I didn't want to hurt them. It wasn't about hurting them, but it was about, I'm not going to spend the rest of my life there. And the irony against irony is I, I cared passionately and deeply about them, both the franchise community and the corporation, and wanted to do the right thing and an opportunity presented itself. I didn't go looking. I mean, it really was on the front page of the paper, but it it all worked out. But I don't know if you had asked me that question 20 years earlier, I would have been able to have that level of confidence or knowledge to say, not so fast, wait a minute. And I do think that comes with 
experience. And, you know, like you said, a few school of hard knocks. I mean, the truth of the matter is it wasn't smooth sailing. And yes, I told you about all the progression I have from company to company, but the truth of the matter is I often had to leave and go somewhere else because I would hit a glass ceiling. And remember back in those days, glass ceiling, especially against women, was alive and well. And I think today it's much more subtle, but back then it was like, Julia, you're the highest ranking female. What are you arguing about? I'm like, I'm not arguing. I'm telling you there's a better opportunity here. I can do more for the corporation. I can add more value. And the answer was usually, well, no, you're the highest ranking female we have. We, why don't you just you know, call it a day and be happy with what you have? So I think early on for me, and I know this sounds a little bit contrived, but early on that school of hard knocks and being knocked down and being told that, you know, I should shush and stay in my place. For me, I can't speak for everyone, but for me, that worked to my advantage. It made me want to succeed even that much harder and wanted to overcome whatever the hurdle was. And maybe some of that, if I really do a hard look at myself, is in my wood. It's kind of who I am, this notion of, you know, I don't give up. Right. There was something that you had said a little bit earlier on in regards to you kind of slipped it in there where you had all of these roles, but then someone had labeled you as not being able to do something, that operational aspect of it where you could do the marketing, you could do all of the things. And yet when it came to that one specific area, it was like, oh, well, you're not going to make the money or whatever it is. Did that ever keep you playing small for a period of time? Because that sounded like it was earlier on when that confidence was still building. I think it was a turning, if I really think about it. I mean, there was a little bit of me saying, wait a minute, you're telling me I can market a program that turns the business on its head, but I can't figure out how to like do labor scheduling for X amount of restaurants and make more money. I mean, the whole notion that somehow my marketing expertise limited me into other areas of the business sounded somewhat like, what are you saying? That That's just silly. Like who in their right mind would think that? And honestly, as I said to you earlier, that advanced management recruit was finding people from all walks of life. I, I just happened to be from marketing, but there were people from other businesses. There was a Harvard MBA that had just left Harvard. There was somebody else who came from logistics. So I'm thinking to myself, somehow somebody with a marketing background is less likely to be successful. I mean, it didn't even make logical sense. I mean, if you, if you say to me, here's some things you need to do to pass the logical, okay, I, I get that. There's some testing or, you know, you have to demonstrate capability. I get that. But to just simply out of hand say to me, well, I don't know how a marketing person could ever be successful in operations seems sort of like, well, that doesn't even make any logical sense to me. So it was less about proving them wrong, more about just like, well, step aside and, you know, I'll take care of that for you. And then in very short order, you know, they they started me at the bottom. I mean, I started as an assistant restaurant general manager running a restaurant. And when the restaurant became the number one in the region, they're like, now, wait a minute. This is the woman who came from marketing. How did she do that? Well, she treated people with dignity and respect. She created a culture in that restaurant. She made people feel valued. Some of the basics that you and I would say doesn't really matter whether you're running a, you know, an office complex or you're running a restaurant or you're running a, a department. It, it doesn't matter. The basic values and tenets of being good leader sort of cross over. 
which is what sort of, if you think about the advanced management recruit program, was what it was all about to begin with. So I do think there was a little bit of me, not so much wanting to, to beat the system, but a little bit of, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I'll just go out and, and do it for me, but also for all of the people I work with and demonstrate capability. Along the way, over 50% of the people that I was dealing with in every one of those environments were women or people of color. And they would look at me and say, well, if she can do it. And so I do think that part of it became important to me, that demonstrating capability to those that were around me. And I think as I, especially when I got to Applebee's and all of these food servers would say, you started as a food server, you give me hope. I don't want to underplay that notion of giving people hope. I think that's part of the the leadership quotient that that I developed for myself. And again, everybody's different. But I think it was less about proving something and it was more about like a little bit of who in their right mind would think that's not possible. So I guess I stepped that aside. But I think in my younger days when people would say, well, you're not promotable or you're going as far as you can, I would never be angry. I would just ask the question, right? Because I was raised to be intellectually curious. Can you be specific? Can you tell me what is that constructive feedback? And I'll never forget one of the early on bosses saying to me, well, no, I, I, I don't have any specific feedback. I just know it's not possible. And I remember thinking all along the way, those are things I don't ever want to be. I don't ever want to be that kind of boss. And so people always say to me, did you have mentors in those early days? No, we didn't even, we didn't call them that. We didn't have them. But I just kept watching people who either I thought were horrible leaders or had no clue. (laughs) And I remember saying to myself, self, don't ever be that way. You can be something so much more and so much better. And so therein lies perhaps that notion of me developing into who I, I became. Mm-hmm. It's so intriguing when we look back and we can see those different phases and moments in time that helped us become the person. And it seems like it was very natural for you to look at humans being humans and to be able to build that culture. And for some, it doesn't come as easy And so as we navigate 2023, when people are talking about toxic workplace environments and what that looks like, why or what made it come easy to you looking at humans and saying, okay, this is is the culture that I do want to build? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I said it early on, it was not popular when I first got into my career But I did reach a ceiling multiple times and I would leave. I would find something. I just came from the world that said, if you don't want me to develop and grow, if you don't care about my development, if the culture is just eat you up and spit you out, why would I work there? I'm too valued. Even early on, I believed I had a lot to contribute. If you didn't want that, okay, then I would move on. And so I think where people get in trouble here is they somehow think the company owes them. The company doesn't owe you if it's a corporation, even if it's an entrepreneur environment. But the truth of the matter is they have to care about you. They have to care about your development. They have to care about you. 
and you have to come meet them 50% of the way, or in my case, I would come 60% and say, here, here's my plan. Here's what I really want to do. You're either going to be supportive of that or not. And, and oftentimes I would, again, I would get to a point where they would say, well, I don't, I don't know how you're going to get any higher or taller. I mean, you kind of are where you are. It was much more difficult for the people I was working for than it was for me. I mean, wait a minute. I came in and I told you I had all of these personal goals and ambitions and things I really wanted to do. And I wanted to expand my horizon. I wanted to be given the opportunities. I wanted to take the risk. And you agreed. You hired me and said, oh, absolutely, Julia. And then as time would go on, you'd kind of either find out the truth about the culture. And I think one of the things that I have coached a lot of people on in the last five years is, look, you know, if you're in a miserable environment and you do not like where you work or you're not valued or there's too many places out there looking for great people, you need to let go. And if you can't financially, you're in a situation that you're taking care of people and you can't then begin looking. But by no means in this environment in 2023, there's no such thing as staying in a horrible environment There's too many great companies out there that are trying too hard. And yes, maybe some of them are learning the lingo and they don't quite yet know how to execute, but there's a huge opportunity. So I do not encourage people if they're in an environment where they're not treated with dignity and respect and no one cares about their development and there is no acknowledgement or recognition. There's too many great companies out there, both in corporate America and in the entrepreneurial environment to go to. And so I encourage people to find the right culture. I'll also tell you, as I've been coaching a lot of young people lately, and I do a fair amount of that, the one thing I find when I ask them, so how did you end up here? Because you know, they'll tell me these stories and I'm, oh my goodness, this is a horrible environment. How did you get up there? They never ask some of what I call the basic interview questions. How do decisions get made? What kind of culture is this? How do you view people for whatever reason? And I, Jessica, I'm not sure I can answer this but they don't ask those questions. They're so happy to get there and you know, so happy to be a part of it. And then they get there and they're like, oh my gosh, this is a horrible environment. And my answer is always, especially in companies where I know, like there's, you know, there's people commonly know it's not a great company to work for, or it's gotten a lot of negative press. And you'll ask people, so how did you not know that? And they'll say, well, I didn't ask any of those questions. I I just simply assumed. And I was thrilled that I was being offered the job. So you never asked how decisions were made. You never asked how often you were going to get a performance appraisal, that feedback was a gift. There was none of that asking those questions up front. And so you get what you get. I think that is a bigger deal than you may think in this environment, and I'm not talking about women, I'm talking about people in general, not asking the tough questions. Yeah. It's it's so fascinating because I I think you were so clear with the description around when people get to the interviews. I think there's a big scarcity mindset, especially if you fear you've always kind of had that underlying aspect of, well, I'm going to get fired or I'm going to let go or I'm not going to get the job. And right then in that moment in time, then it's an automatic assumption. Well, I can't ask the hard questions because then they're going to judge me. But that's also the time to be asking those hard questions because if someone's already ready to have you exit when you're asking those tough questions, then you don't want to be in that job either. And it's funny you say that because I have a child who's in that, you know, first stages of going out and interviewing. And she said, you know, mom, you're just, 
far more confrontational. I'm like, honey, that's not confrontational. That's asking honest questions. You're forming a, it's kind of like a relationship. You're going to work for these people. You want to know about them and, and you want them to know about you. But why would you want to go to work for a horrible environment? You'll be back out anyway. Rather that you ask, and she said, well, I just see that as, and maybe it's generational. I don't know. But she said, I just see that as confrontational. And I said, I see that as intellectually curious and wanting to know about the company and doing your homework and coming prepared. Inevitably, what does a potential employer do in an interview? They say, Jessica, what questions do you have for me? Right. And Jessica, it's not a positive when you say, well, I have none. Yep. Right. I mean, yep. I, I'm just happy to be here, Julia, and I can't wait for, <laughs> you know, I, I yeah. mean, the truth of the matter is, ask me about our vision, ask me about our culture, ask me about how we treat and value diversity. What does that make you? That makes you 10 times more valuable. But I, I do think part of that is cultural and part of that is folklore legend about what people have said. And, you know, I didn't get the interview and I think I get all that, but I also think there's just too many great places to work today that you wouldn't want to have that great dialogue. And I just think it matters, right? Somebody, I interviewed somebody the other day and they said, oh, I, I want to do what you do. And I'm like, perfect. <laughs> I like that. I like being start able to, tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. I like being able to have those conversations. I think that they are so important. Now, having the conversation with yourself. So going to 2017, when you decided to leave and make that shift, I want to relate this actually to Jacinda Ardern, who's the past prime minister of New Zealand, because I think that women can be more self-aware and they can recognize that, hey, Jacinda took months to be able to decide then, listen, I don't have a gas tank full of energy to be able to take those next steps or take the country to where it needs to be. And so where is that point in time recognizing that it's time for me to step away from the CEO position? What was that like for you to make that decision? Mine was a little bit unique in that I did have plenty of energy in the tank. And you're seeing that today. I simply pivoted. But I think mine was much more about agree to disagree with the board in terms of the future of the company. And, you know, if you take anything away from this, when you've been in the business as long as I have, and you have the confidence and the expertise, if you don't value my judgment and opinion, well, that's problematic, especially when you think about what we had done in those almost 20 years. It was extraordinary and exceptional. And if you suddenly don't value that, well, again, then it's probably time for me to go and think about doing something else. So I guess, if you will, and maybe this sounds a bit corny to you or a bit contrived, but I think the notion of whether I was early in my career or late in the career, when you decide that it isn't an environment uh, for your success, then it's it's time to, to make a change. And I didn't believe that it could be done in that environment. And so I said, it's, we can agree to disagree. And so I guess the point to that story is whether you're the 
you know, the food server at the beginning or you're the CEO on the top. In some ways, the story and the narrative you and I have been talking about today doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter where you are in that world order. If you're not valued and you believe in your heart of heart that those that organization or that environment or your direct supervisor or whatever, as you know, most people leave because of their direct supervisor. If you believe that you're suddenly not valued and that it's time for you to go, then it's time for you to go. I'm a big believer in everybody wins. And I also think from a cultural standpoint, if it's done correctly, it's not about failures or we dislike each other or I can't stay. It's all about, you know what, Jessica, I've done what I set out to do here. And thank you so much for the opportunity, but it's it's time. And if done correctly, which it isn't always, but if it's done correctly, you know, Jessica, everybody wins. You win. The person leaving wins. I do tell the story over the years. I did have to let people go. It wasn't a right fit. It wasn't that whatever. And I ran into one of those people recently and he thanked me and said, you know, Julia, you were at the time I didn't see it, but now I realize it was the best thing. And you were so gracious about it. And I, and it wasn't a surprise and I knew it wasn't a great fit in my heart of heart. I just didn't want to admit that. And I went on to, to other things that more fit what I really wanted to do. But at the time I was so bent on, I have to be this, you know, person who gets the title and whatever. I can't tell you how many times in coaching I ask people, why do you want this job? Well, I I want the title. I need the, okay, but for what purpose? I mean, let's be really clear what you're, have you investigated the company? Do you understand the culture? Do you feel like you can really make a, a difference here? It's very interesting as you really get into it. And one person in particular who I really did care about, who I thought had all the skills in the world, was really not meant to be in corporate America. And I finally sat her down and said, you know, you're probably going to make the best consultant there is because you're really not meant for that environment. And let me tell you why. And so we had this really long, thoughtful conversation and she's still a very successful consultant today. And she said to me, you know, you treat feedback as a gift. I just don't think most people still to this day either know how to do it, know how to give it or know how to receive it. And I said, well, then you're going to spend your life being miserable. The first time my son came home with, you know, an actual performance appraisal, he's like, oh my gosh, they gave me something to work on. I mean, what what were they thinking? And I said, you know what? That's the greatest gift you can get. And then you're going to work on it. And guess what? After you make that an A, they're going to find something else. No, (laughs) they're going to find something else. Yes, they're going to find something yeah. And I'll never forget. And this is a USC graduate, right? And I remember thinking at the time, okay, that's the piece we don't teach. That's the piece somehow that's not indelible. This notion of if treated correctly, if it's culturally treated correctly, and it is a gift, it's as good as it gets. If you don't want the gift, wrapping or not, then you're going to struggle and you will reach a point where you hit the, this isn't working. I talk about that a lot, and I think that's 
it's just not easy for people. I'm sorry to say, and, and part of that is you and I both know there's a culture that doesn't necessarily support, and there are there are those companies that do. And I, I also would tell you from what I see with all these people I'm mentoring, who, by the way, are from all walks of life and different businesses, they are starting to tell me, you know, for a while it was lip service, but now there's real effort going on to really genuinely have a better understanding. And now my son, I love this story, who gets a performance appraisal in writing from the entire team every six months, can't oh, wait for it. I love that. Okay. So last question I want to ask, because now that you've stepped in, we've gone through the years and you're stepping into Allurex, which is a completely different venture away from everything. And some people would definitely come in and say, well, you were in a completely different industry. Where do you find the confidence to step into something that is different? So regardless if it's a passion project or whatever we decide to call it, how do we find that confidence to say, okay, this is the next step. I do have that energy in my gas tank. I'm ready to take this on. Where does that confidence come from? I think it comes from, it's a great question, by the way. And I think it comes from two different scenarios. One is, as I said, I did a ton of quantitative and qualitative research, talked to a lot of consumers that gave me confidence. Look, lady, if you could really do something that has all these parameters, I'm in. So that was very reassuring for me that I was headed in the right direction. And then the other thing I always have to remind people, my entire career in the restaurant business was helping franchisees be more successful, either on the top line, the bottom line, or both. So if you think about it, what are franchisees? They're entrepreneurs. So between my Taco Bell days and my Applebee's days and my IHOP days, I've probably helped over a thousand franchisees. I've probably made a hundred multimillionaires. So I've helped a lot of people be very successful or more successful than they were using basic business principles from the top line marketing perspective and from the bottom line operational perspective and the infrastructure. And then along the way, really enjoying how to optimize the PL, how to be more successful. So I use those basic methods as I built out Alorix in the same basic way, using those same basic principles. Interestingly enough, I'll end on this. When I started talking to potential investors, their biggest concern was that I had come from corporate America and wouldn't understand how to get my fingers dirty or wouldn't be able to roll up my sleeves. And anytime somebody would tell me that, I would burst out laughing like, okay, well, then you don't really know me very well. Uh, this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for sharing those ups, those downs, the sideways, because it is. And that's what makes our careers and our life just enjoyable. And I know in moments in time, we can't necessarily see it at that point in time, but it does really give us the opportunity to move forward. Is there any last words you would like to share with the uh, listeners? I would say all that, and you asked some great questions and, and we went down some great paths today, but you know, all that we talked about is on the career side, but make no mistake about it. Those lessons learned, those life's lessons apply to your personal life as well. And a lot of the, the things I talked about, the taking the risk, the pushing myself, the, you know, those things really do advance in your private life as well. Finding the right partner, being there for your children 
being there for your family, you know, doing the right things, having the tough conversations, giving the constructive feedback. I just think at the end of the day, you got one life, so you might as well do all that you can to make it the best that it can be. I just don't think you should be afraid of failing. I I do fail. I just fail really quick. (laughs) Those are magical gems. And I'm so glad that we're ending on on that note. Thank you again, Julia, for being here. I appreciate it. You are welcome. I need to take a moment and break down what Julia just said. Because when I tell people about this interview, they say this is a movie in the making. And that is exactly it. Julia started off working at IHOP as a waitress. Love the service industry so much, especially with the immediate feedback, that you could then make changes to learn and grow. With that, she became a Taco Bell manager, eventually working her way up to being president of Applebee's, which is where she was told, no, you can't be CEO because she's a woman. I know you can't see my eyes, but they are side-eyeing and eye-rolling. Like, what the hell? But the story doesn't stop there. She knew it was time to leave Applebee's. She processed her pain and realized, well, if it's not here, she's going to be CEO elsewhere and left. She found that confidence within herself. She then went back to IHOP, became CEO, and then bought Applebee's, became that CEO, and fired the person who said she couldn't ever be CEO. My mind is blown. Let's just take a hot second right now because my mind is blown. If you want to find a way, you'll find that way. Will it be easy and straightforward? Likely not, but what is in life? Living, working, raising kids, dating, divorce, making relationships work, learning about yourself, navigating that inner gremlin, moving through traumas, steering workplace cultures, and the list goes on, all of it is hard. All of these things are hard. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Key to learning is repetition. That's why I tend to repeat myself sometimes. Life is going to be hard. It's hard to stay upset, frustrated, and angry, and it's hard to feel happy, joy, and contentment. Both take work and effort. Choose your heart. Write it on a post-it. Say it to yourself in the morning. Speak it to you when you are right in the middle of that something hard. Choose your heart. Okay, key takeaways from today. Number one, define your definition of success. Julia gave us hers. Success is different for each one of us. Some days it may feel like it's right there and you can grab it and hold it, cheer it on and cuddle it. (laughs) But other days, it's so far out there, you feel like you'll never get there. All success, regardless of how you choose to define it, will come with all of the emotions. Therefore, embrace it all. Key takeaway number two, value you when making difficult career decisions. At times, and based on cultural norms, upbringing, and family, you may notice that it is natural for you to take care of others and put you last. Do not forget about you. Do not forget that you are important. Do not forget your value. That includes in your personal life and in your professional life. Julia had someone tell her that she wouldn't be CEO, so she left, became CEO, then bought the company who said no to her. Then she decided it was time for her to leave after an incredible career, take a break, and then realize she wanted to try something else, entrepreneurship. It's not always clear the choice you should make, but when you value you, then the choice is never wrong. Before, I said choose your heart. Now it's time to choose you. Choose your heart and choose you. 
Before I get to the reflection question, as mentioned earlier, today's episode is the second last episode as we round out season two of Speak Kindly, You're Listening. Season three will be around the corner starting in the fall, more specifically end of September. Let me share with you some exciting news. I love this episode so much because it's a great bridge between season two and season three. What does that mean? Next season will be a special edition season where I bring on individuals who have navigated toxic workplace cultures and amazing workplace cultures across all different industries. Julia showed that it is totally possible to build cultures where you care about people. And I'm gonna be showcasing that next season. And guess what? Next season will have a special edition title too. Speak Kindly, Your Listening will become Speak Kindly, They're Listening. Navigating interpersonal relationships, workplace culture, psychological safety, and difficult conversations. In moving with the theme, I'm looking for some rock star sponsors that emulate workplace culture and looking to you, my listeners, for suggestions. If you have a company in mind, or it's your company, or you have a contact for me, please connect them to me through social media or info at drjessicametcalf.com. The podcast is expanding and I'm looking forward to bringing you along for the ride. Every episode, just like the past, will have a reflection question and this one is yours for today. Is there a career decision that you have been putting off because you aren't choosing to value you? If so, what steps can you take to make the necessary changes? When you found your answer, send me a DM on Instagram or an email to info at drjessicametcalf.com. That's info at drjessicametcalfe.com. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Speak Kindly, You're Listening. We are going to be wrapping up this season next episode with me, Jessica Metcalf, as a guest. I figured it was time that I got vulnerable on this episode, just like my guests have in the past. Next week, Mary Chen, my amazing, incredible, and fantastic podcast producer, will be doing the interview, and I so look forward to sharing it with you. Lastly, remember, when you hear your inner gremlin, ask yourself, would I say this to a loved one? And if your answer is no, then it's time for a reframe. Speak kindly. You're listening.